Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull is our guest on this episode of the Goldmine Magazine podcast. This is Pat Prince, editor of Goldmine Magazine. And many of you know that Jethro Tull has already passed its 50th birthday. And now, this year, it's been 50 years since Jethro Tull first started touring the U.S. We'll talk about that with Ian Anderson. And we'll talk about other things like Stephen Wilson's remaster of the Stormwatch album. We'll talk about vinyl as a format, Tull's longtime lyrical awareness of the environment and climate change, also a 50th anniversary Jethro Tull mail-order-only coffee table book, The History of Jethro Tull. It's called The Ballad of Jethro Tull, and of course, Tull's upcoming tour of the U.S. So we'll be right back with Ian Anderson. We have a lot to talk about, but we'll be right back after this message from CygnusRadio.com. Hey, I'm Ronald Webb, and this is Patrick Prince. And together we host the Goldmine Radio Hour, the show that features the latest issue of Goldmine, the music collector's magazine. Tune in Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on CygnusRadio.com. Ian, how are you? Very well, how are you? It's been 50 years that you've been touring, you know, that you have toured in the U.S., so you've seen the changes. In fact, you were, 50 years ago, you were on tour with Led Zeppelin and Vanilla Fudge, correct? Uh, in the US? Uh, well, the night that, um, the the the, uh, the famous uh, uh, brief excursion of Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong onto the moon, we actually had a, we had a, we had a day off that day. And I really? got to watch it live on TV because the night before we'd been playing with Led Zeppelin in in uh i think in the kinetic theater in chicago hmm. um so <clears throat> yes we we do remember those landmark moments and um that's um that's one of them you know i like hundreds of millions of people around the world got to watch that live and it was um, an incredible moment um one to uh to savor and remember where you were and what you were doing it just happened that i was in the usa and it felt very much part of the very real world mm. given that um uh in spite of a certain amount of flag waving and jubilation and nationalism i think there was a generosity of spirit particularly in neil armstrong's uh, somewhat dubiously delivered speech but uh, you know we know what he meant to say um a small step for a man um and a giant leap for mankind you know he didn't say anything about the usa even buzz aldrin who uh had the the good sense not to um um not to prattle on about um his private religious uh, uh affections during his moonwalk about you know yeah. he he revealed that only later that he'd um taken holy communion from the moon and that he um you know it was a, i think a, a sensitivity that perhaps would not happen today um certainly not with the current um, populist government of the usa i think uh, brutality on the rambling and raging on twitter is the is the order of the day but i, I do think that both neil and buzz represented a, a human endeavor it wasn't just about america and uh, I, you know, I like to think that even today, that's still alive and well in the spirit that pervades the International Space Station, where Russians, Americans, and uh, other uh, crews are part of, a, you know, a global initiative, and in one of the few areas of any endeavour, are mutually supportive, and the pride extends, you know, right across the board. It's. Um, 
maybe necessary to use uh, the ancient Soyuz rocket to get up there, but um, hmm. you know, without that, there wouldn't be any continuing exploration of space. And uh, I think the Russians deserve all the credit in the world for having managed to keep things going in spite of their economic difficulties and their, their um, perhaps relative lack of engineering innovation in in recent years. But, um, you know, thank God we've got the Russians, at least in, in that side of things. Right. Well, you know, next, next stop, Mars. Who knows? <laughs> well, next stop is probably the moon again. But, of yeah. course, um, there are those who consider Mars, obviously, as the... And has been for many, many years the uh, the real interesting place mm -hmm. to uh, to go and try to set up some kind of miniature colony, and it um, it's um, it's part of part of a future that sadly I won't get to see, but you mm -hmm. know, very exciting. I, I, I actually wrote and applied uh, to uh, to be a, a one-way space adventurer on the Mars mission. But strangely, I didn't get a reply. It's very mm. strong. I wonder why. You would have been the entertainment on the voyage. <laughs> well, I probably would have been the dead passenger because I would probably would have snuffed it shortly after sure. takeoff. I don't have a head for heights, you see. <laughs> now, back to Earth 50 years ago. Is it true that... Um, did you receive an invite for Woodstock? Well, you know, it wasn't quite like that. You didn't get a you didn't get a sort of white, you know, no. gold lettered card <laughs> saying RSVP. I mean, the indication was they were looking for extra come and play, and that yeah. uh, um, I happened to be in New York at that time. And my manager Terry Ellis came to me and said, "Hey, you know, what do you think about you know doing the show in Woodstock?" You know, and I said, well, "What is it?" And he tried to describe it to me. And when we got to the bit about um, you know, the kind of cultural and social side of it. And I asked him, well, will they be taking drugs and taking their clothes off and having sex in fields? And he said, oh, probably. So I said, well, I think I might be washing my hair that day, which <laughs> was a palpable excuse given that I actually owned quite a lot of it at that time. Yeah. But uh, I just knew that it wasn't for me because this was our second U.S. tour. You know, we were mm. just beginners. We were just finding our feet and developing a style and uh, our... Our uh, management and record label stablemates ten years after took up the the offer to go to Woodstock and and were one of the great hits of the festival and and I, it, it, what happened to them is what I fear would happen to us that it would literally paint them into a corner in definitive terms. This is the hippie the hippie you know rock band of of, uh, of Woodstock gotcha. and that, that right. haunted them for the rest of their lives and uh, right. to this day. Um, well, I'm, he's actually not in the band anymore, Leo Lyons, the bass player, but when I saw him a few years ago at some festival in Europe and I asked him, you know, what songs they'd been playing just after they came off and, and he showed me on the side of his guitar a set list taped and uh, so I leaned over, he said, yeah, he said, uh, so this, this has been taped to my side of my, my Fender bass guitar since uh, Woodstock. It's still the same show. Mm -hmm. That's what they played, and, and and you can't ever get away from that, you know. And I think that that would have happened to Jethro Tull. We would have been identified as some kind of a um, manic hippie band, and you know, I knew that we had you know a long way to go, and it was too early in our career to be stereotyped in any in any regard. So it was a best. It was just you know second best career move of my life, really, mm. not to do Woodstock. In some ways, I can see tall there with uh, your folk leanings and um 
there's a part of me that would think you would fit in. Uh, not yeah, to do anything have, with the we hippie. Didn't, we didn't have that at the time. You know, yeah, you when, didn't. When Woodstock came by, we, we hadn't even released our second album. You're right. And so we were known only as being a little old, you know, kind of quirky blues band. Right. Uh, the the origins of progressive rock music, which were first, I suppose, recognized in 1969, it, that, that did not happen yet in the USA. Mm. Therefore, you know, we, we would have been um, stereotyped along the lines of our first album, which with, with no, no accident, I called that This Was Jethro mm. Tull. Because the one thing Good I felt one. absolutely sure about in 1968 yeah. when we recorded it was that this would not be what I would be doing in a year's time. Right. And um, that's why I gave it the name. This was Jethro Tull. And um, it was, I think, rather rather important to, to see in that, in that context that it was the beginning. It was the first tentative efforts in, in a recording studio playing the music that we played live on stage, which was somewhat um, pragmatically arrived at because that was the, that was the kind of music that we could... Uh, perform and get noticed for doing because mm -hmm. that was a subculture of uh, contemporary music in the UK at that time. Yes. It was it was all the little blues clubs all over the country, and of course the more famous venues like the Marquee Club in London, where we began. Well, you went over the Marquee. The Marquee was Jethro Tull's Cavern Club. Yes, it, it was the place that gave us the opportunity to go out there and and play on a regular basis and build up a following. Well, you fit very well into the uh, rock and roll circus, the Rolling Stones rock and roll circus, which just got a deluxe treatment reissue recently. But uh, the Tull performance was amazing, I thought. The song for Jeffrey, I thought it was wonderful. And I guess you had all those connections through the marquee, right? Being living in London, Mick Jagger probably asked you guys to play in that. Well, I, I didn't actually ask them where they'd seen us play, but it, it was uh, Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts, I think, who recommended Jethro Tull to Mick Jagger when they were deciding what uh, bands to have on as guests. And yes. uh, uh, I believe that um, that they had seen Jethro Tull somewhere, so quite possibly would have been at the Marquee Club because that was um, a London venue that was the cutting edge of, of all the bands that developed in the late 60s, early 70s. So maybe Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts had popped in there for a few minutes and seen Jethro Tell. I have no idea. I didn't ask them. Well, even though it was bearded for 50 years or whatever, it was not 50, but maybe 40. It came out in the 90s. Um, it was a good career move for Tall because when it came out, I've heard lots of people say they just really loved the performance there. Um, so people got to look back. Uh, and that's important with the rock band, even though um, this was, as you pointed out, still it, it carries with uh, rock connoisseurs. Um, just the legacy of the band, Jethro Tull. Well, it, it has... Uh Apart from a few very standard blues kind of constructions, it also has it, it hints a little bit here and there lyrically and uh, and musically. It hints at what was to come. Yes, but um, you know, essentially, that we were billed back then as a as a blues band, and we played in blues clubs. Yeah, and that was essentially the uh, the identity that Jethro Tull had from January '68 through till about. Uh, well, through to December, really, yeah. although we'd, um, um, I suppose, just about managed to start a, a little bit of a new 
kind of uh, the last recording we did actually with Mick Abrahams, the original guitar player, was uh, the recording a piece called A Christmas Song, which was um, me playing mandolin with a string quartet, which was uh, was um, an indication of things to come. Sure. And uh, a piece of music which Mick actually played on called Love Story, which was much more along the lines of what became known as progressive rock. It certainly wasn't, it certainly wasn't Chicago blues, that's for sure. And t- Tony Iommi on guitar during that... Uh rock and roll circus well he he stepped in but yeah. you know, it's important to remember that um the because tony just dropped dropped by to mine that and yes it, we, we were not uh, i think i was i was live singing and playing the flute from memory i think the harmonica was uh was on tape along with the rest of the band because we didn't have uh, at that point a, a replacement guitarist and mm-hmm. tony who we knew he came down and uh just joined in miming on guitar so we were kind of charlatans really we weren't you know we were half playback as opposed to uh live which the who were and uh, even the rolling stones when they did mm. their piece they, you know, their, 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 their music they, it, it was 100 percent live mm. and some somewhat under pressure because brian jones at that point wasn't really functioning um and Human being i rather feel that he his, his contribution was um, Very limited, minimal yeah. or yeah. inaudible. So uh, it was a, that was a sadness that I think we all recognised that something was fundamentally wrong in the band at that point. And um, Brian, of course, uh, died not too long after. It was sad because he was the one that started it all. So yes. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I, I remember meeting Brian. He, you know, he came over and, and was friendly and chatty, and uh, you know, he wanted to borrow a guitar pick. I remember because he couldn't find his. Mm. And I felt very sorry for him because quite quite clearly he was pleasant, amiable, but really not kind of engaged with the reality of what was going on. And right. I think he, he was marginalized by the rest of the band who didn't, you know, I think they were somewhat embarrassed about his right. lack of functionality as a musician and um, increasingly as a as a part of the, the the family of the band you know yeah. he would he'd sort of drifted off into a world inspired really mainly by drugs and misguided notions of uh, of the hippie dream mm-hmm. so it's all unraveled unfortunately for him would the and, hippie and of dream... threatened to do for the other guys in the rolling stones yeah. too but they yes. they managed to finally steer a, an unsteady course for the next few years and um, mm-hmm. had their resurgence as a live act and the in the 80s and 90s, which um, brought them back to the forefront of of world music. They, they are probably the most famous live performing band of all time. And, um, um, you know, I, I always had a preference for Led Zeppelin myself as a as a band of of slightly slightly more inventiveness and uh, mm-hmm. development in their short career. But, um, you know, I, I, um, I, I still recognize the Rolling Stones for what I think they are. Mm-hmm. They might be referred to as the world's greatest band and not without uh, not without due good reason. Right. Well, let's jump jump ahead in time to Stormwatch. This is another treatment by Stephen Wilson, a remix and remastered. It's going to be reissued. And as far as the Tolls canon is concerned, do you think is this is one of an under underappreciated album? Well, I think it it it, it was an album that um 
arrived on the scene when the world of what had been the kind of progressive rock was beginning to crumble for a lot of artists and uh, I don't think yep. the sales of that were were as good as they had been for the album before Heavy Horses or before that Songs from the Wood and the Songs from the Wood was a pretty successful everywhere um, it, it was the I suppose the first of of two albums that were definitely interconnected with a kind of a folk rock feel which were obviously evident in the in the songs on songs from the wood and heavy horses it was often stormwatch is lumped in to a trilogy of folk rock albums by certain writers certain critics who consider it that way i i, I th rather think that that's a bit ambitious i i felt stormwatch had moved on into something less traditional and related to the countryside it, it, it was a darker album more concerned with issues of environment and and um the um the angry world of nature mm -hmm. uh, it, it was it was an album that i think perhaps was a little downbeat um compared to the more whimsical elements of heavy horses and songs from the wood which were more balanced in terms of being serious but upbeat and sometimes light-hearted but songs from the wood was you know quite quite often rather dark stuff and um, but the Stephen Wilson remix of the original album, plus all the, the unreleased tracks and uh, demos that were found, and of course a live concert from uh, Holland, which has made it into this uh, probably one of the most um, value for money and interesting box sets of, of anything that uh, that we've done in more recent years. So it's it's a it's a great great um, great package and one that. Obviously, like all the others, taken up quite a bit of my time one way or another. Uh, but, um, you know, one that sonically is very interesting for the fans to hear Stephen's remixes, which uh, are not radically different to the originals, but they bring that sparkle and clarity, which um, you are able to do once you enter the, the digital domain with those original analog tapes being converted to digital. You can clean things up and make them all sparkly and nice and new and it, it's a, just a more transparent kind of um, insight into the music that has that edge and that clarity that uh, it was hard to get with analog tape mm -hmm. but try telling that to some enthusiast of vinyl and turntables <laughs> and um, days gone by where they um, right. You know, members of uh, the Flat Earth Society won't be prized out of their convenient position on certain things. But frankly, although vinyl albums today, when they're well, um, when they're well mixed, when they're well mastered, mm. and uh, carefully and with great passion produced by the few um, cutting studios and uh, pressing plants left on planet Earth, they, they, they are much better quality than they were in the days when they were just vinyl. Um, yes. I mean, the, the standard of, uh, of uh, vinyl pressing today is, I believe, much higher than it ever was. And the, the, the engineers who are huge enthusiasts and passionate about what they do, they, they, they get the very best out of Neumann cutting lathes that are something in the region of you know 50 years old. Yeah. Or even maybe 55 years old in some cases, but there are just a few of them left around the world being pirated for spares and lovingly kept going, doing their doing their doing their job. But this this is you know 
basically technology that is more than 50 years old and it mm -hmm. still works in the right hands impeccably well um, and with the right much, artists much better than much better than the quality that was produced back in the 60s and 70s yeah there are certain artists um, that I think are better they sound better on vinyl that's just me and I, I like the who for instance um, and I also find vinyl more engaging uh, because of the album size and that you have to actually interact with the player in a certain way. Um, that's just me, though. Maybe I'm nostalgic, too. But, um, yes, well, I think I think that is part of it. There's nothing wrong with that. And even for young people who are investing in... in uh, in turntables and a, a vinyl collection today you know they, they don't have nostalgia they just like it because yeah. it is something that is retro it has a very tangible and tactile um uh relationship to to them as listeners and it it, it has a it, it's it, it's a, an alternative way <clears throat> and that's what we try to do we give people choice in the yes. in the way that we deliver music to them and that's expected of every artist these days you've got to give people choice as to how yeah. they listen to music and um, I, like many people who uh, consume music today, I, I listen uh, almost exclusively on um, on uh, on digital audio files, mm -hmm. and um, I hardly ever listen to music being played on speakers. And I don't even well, I, I believe I I believe I do possess um, a couple of uh, vinyl turntables, but I, I recently. Um, uh, put them up for sale because I, I have no intention of going through the Japanese tea ceremony of plugging these things in and <laughs> setting them up and fiddling around with them for, you know, getting it all sorted, just as I have no inclination really to go back to the days of um, of film photography, even though I have a, a good number of beautiful film cameras from the, you know, from the 1930s on through the 80s, and uh, they're lovely things, but frankly, I am not likely to put rolls of film in and go through the time-consuming uh, right. passage of, of events that uh, before I can finally get and see those images in the way that I want to see them. So I think know, I'm, with I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not going back there. It's a, you know same thing with music. I mean, I, I I live and work and operate in a in the digital age, whether it's photography or music or mm. or computers. Of, uh, that's how it's been since uh, effectively since the end of the seventies. We've been moving in that direction. By the time we got to eighty one, eighty two, eighty three, it was um, it was digital music and digital everything and. You know, the world is a better place for it in terms of uh, what it offers people in terms of entertainment. Well, I think with the younger generation, the millennials, I think it is sort of like a, a rebellion going to the more tangible, you know, because they grew up uh, sort of with all digital. So it, it's it's for them, it's a sort of, in a way, a rebellious move, a sort of brushback. Um, I can yeah, see that. I, I, I can find I can I can see that that works in yeah. terms of of the vinyl experience, which yeah. is is hugely enjoyable and uh, something that is you know quite vital for a lot of people, right. be they young or old. But I have a feeling that we won't have that same retro nostalgia for CDs and certainly not for cassettes. Right. Right. It's um, you know that that is an era that is. You know, perhaps the convenience of cassettes was a major step forward to be able to have 
portable music, mm-hmm. listen to it on the move wherever you were, but the quality was pretty terrible, yes. and the fragility of those cassettes and the tapes was, was pretty poor. Um, and the CD age was a halfway house, really. It was a tangible, physical product, but um, nonetheless, audio-wise, at, uh, at a 44.1 sample rate, you know, it was a big step forward. But these days, of course, we uh, we tend to operate at higher digital standards that um, uh, right. make for us, I suppose, we have, just as we have in photography, we have, li- we have reached the limit in terms of uh, file types and sizes and and uh, and definition that you know we have to grow new 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 ears and new eyes to justify going forward from let's say 24 bit audio whether recorded at 48k or 96k it's kind of irrelevant you know mm-hmm. we we nothing we need new ears to appreciate anything finer than what we have now and the same thing once you get to Arguably, uh, you know, if you've got a 24 megapixel film sensor, you really have to be enlarging and cropping to a huge degree to see any great benefits in moving to, you know, 42 or 50 um, megapixels. It, it gives you a lot more detail, but it, you you are only scrutinizing on a pixel basis you know something that isn't really reflected in the real world in the way that we see images or in the way that we hear music so you know we 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 can pretty much say we're there you know the human physiology the human anatomy the human condition is is well satisfied with what we now have and perhaps um engineers and developers of the future would be well placed to recognize that that it it's, it ceases to become of any real marketing benefit once you go beyond where you are now it's just more expensive and very large file sizes and unless you're doing something very radical with the image there is no real benefit to be gained um going beyond where where we have been in these last few years mm. i think uh, I don't think anyone in their right mind would challenge what I've just said. You know, yeah, you, right. you, you, would have, you would have to grow new ears and new eyes to, to benefit from uh, from any increase in where today's technology has brought us. It's um, it's just rather pointless to uh, to keep uh, expanding upon those um, those things. True. So apart from a very few a very few cases where you need wall size poster images you know that there is no benefit really in going much beyond where we now have these options and music is exactly the same there's no point whatsoever really in going beyond 40k sample rate because you know that that effectively gives you more than more than 20k and our human ears operate from you know roughly 30 40 hertz through to about even a young a totally virgin set of ears are maybe going to hear 15, 16K, and people pretend, the nerds pretend that there is some huge advantage and they can hear the difference. You know, you can certainly hear the difference between 24-bit um, 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 bit rates compared to uh, 16, but... Um, you know, we 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 got there some years ago. <laughs> There's any point in in moving on from there? There really isn't. Well, you know, so, the world uh, of hot- things can get cheaper and more convenient. Yeah. And, um, but uh, you know, we we are there with our with our current um, technology and media. You know, we are. There is little to be gained in going beyond where we now are. If 
far better off to uh, just stick with uh, stick with the existing um, mm-hmm. technology, both physically and in terms of operating software. Let's stick what we've got and concentrate on planting more trees and persuading your president that uh, you know he will be listed in the future as uh, guilty of crimes against humanity for his absurd. Um, refusal to recognize what the rest of the world knows, but for, like him, refuses to do anything about it because it's a little, as Al, can, Al, Al Gore very aptly put it some years ago, it is inconvenient to recognize the truth of uh, of where we currently are, and that's been on the cards for many, many. I wrote my first climate change climate change song back in 1973. This, this isn't rocket science. This is nothing new. But uh, it just is beyond me that people will refuse to recognize the issues that will affect their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, and and um, potentially imperil the planet. And uh, it, it, far better to recognize the real fundamental crossroads that we are at in humanity rather than keep pursuing mindless goals of increasing technology or increasing uh, um, the... Um, the uh the global economic success you know mm-hmm. time 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 to change uh, you may have noticed in the press today that uh, uh a member of our royal family uh prince harry and his american is she american or canadian wife M- megan uh megan whatever she's called have announced today that they are not going to have more than two children <laughs> uh, they have one, and they may or may not have another, but they are not going to have more than two children. I, I heartily congratulate yeah. Prince Harry for coming out and saying that, but I, he will already be receiving hate mail and threats for uh, uh, setting an example, sure. which uh, some people feel imperils their right to have as many babies as they want. Uh, that's their decision, but... Um, people it, seem to uh, forget thank, that. Thank, 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 thank you, Prince Harry, for taking a... Um, an actual principled line on this that um, the environmental future of our planet depends on uh, on population size um, just as much as what fuel we tend to burn or how many how many uh, deep freezes refrigerators air conditioning and motor cars we want to drive it all has a a direct relationship to the number of people on planet earth and uh, i i do wish that people would join those dots together and make their responsible decisions for the future yeah, overpopulation would affect the Earth even if there were no technology. It's just well, it would affect the Earth as as we would hope to yes. have some utopian future age where the planetary population would enjoy more equality, more prosperity. There would be less in the way of a huge discrepancy between the the super rich and the and the breadline poor. Um, you know that that kind of utopian future society is something that. I can't imagine anybody not not saying, well, that would be a happier place. That would be a happier time to live in. But, of course, it can't happen because the sustainable long-term population of our planet is, is more like two to three billion mm-hmm. in terms of today's um, technologies, to d- today's ability to uh, to uh, utilize the resources, many of which are dwindling very quickly. Um, and in the face of climate change and the radical pressure that will bring upon uh, <laughs> no country perhaps uh, more so than the very varied United States of America which will see um, a huge impact during the uh, the remainder of this uh, of this century in terms of food production and yes. shifting 
um, shifting uh, populations within the USA to say nothing of the pressure that will increase in terms of immigration legally or illegally from people elsewhere who are just desperate to survive and you know whatever um, concerns might be felt both in Europe or in the USA about immigration right. keeping people out then uh, you know we've seen nothing yet in terms of the pressure yet to come but the, the, re the reasons are not in yet directly to do with being uh, whatever right. being referred to as climate migrants right, right. but uh, that is the increasing likelihood in the future and of course in Central America um, particularly in Mexico you know it is a it is a We'll be feeling a huge pressure from climate change increasingly over the next decades, and um, you know, the, the, I, I think, I think, it, with all fairness, it'll probably be the Canadians who would think about building a Trumpian wall to keep you lot out. <laughs> Frankly, that's a that's a greater likelihood. It probably is. Now, mm -hmm. as far as technology, um, you mentioned surprise virtual guests on this American tour. Does does that have anything to do with? Technology is there going to be like a hologram or something? Um, well, if there, were, if, if there were usable holograms at a at a, at a, uh, a feasible price, I, hey, I, I would love to do that. Um, yeah, I say yeah, that I half jokingly, but I could, I, I could just stay at home and send out the other guy. You know, that that would be great. But, I say that you know, half jokingly, but Zappa, you know, they're doing that with Zappa now. You know, they're trying to. Yes, do I know, and, um, and and of course, the, the, these are ways in which we can continue to uh, enjoy the experience and the the huge plethora of tribute bands around the world playing the music yes. of Pink Floyd, for example, um, are a testimony to the greatness of the originals and the, the fact that in many cases they're no longer around to do their thing and therefore fair game for tribute bands to go and make a fast buck imitating other people. Uh, that began with the bootleg Beatles back in the, I think back in the That's 70s, right. the bootleg Beatles began. Yep. And, and since then, you know, they, they are, if you like, the original tribute band in the sense of, of going out of their way to look like, to appear like, to sound like the original band. And um, that's something that, you know, it is entertaining. There's no doubt that it can be entertaining, but it is, it is just a facsimile. It's not the real thing, and it just, you know, in a way, I suppose, is something that is low-tech, a, a way of bringing back those those memories or giving people a chance to hear what that was all about, since it's very often lovingly, carefully, meticulously put together to, mm -hmm. to be, um, you know, as close as possible to the original as, as, as it's, as it's, as it's uh, humanly possible to get. But, you know, technology in terms of entertainment is something that I think people expect in a way. And, if, if, you know, if I'm playing an indoor show in a theater, then, you know, we tend to use video um, to give context and added visual interest to the show. And um, whether, beats... that's a, whether, whether that's a conventional screen or the projector or right. whether it's a video wall, um, you know, we, we, we use that on our theater shows. But, of course, I do a lot of shows um, like I'm off to in a couple of days' time in, in Germany, which are out in the open air and for reasons that have to do with um, the realities of performance outdoors, then, you know, we can't usually... Uh, risk doing uh, doing live video in uh, in outdoor shows in the summer. It doesn't get dark until maybe nine thirty, even ten o'clock in northern latitudes. So 
it uh, it just doesn't it doesn't really work out terribly well. Um, so we then do a show which is a generic best of show, which is just us standing on a stage with a conventional lighting rig and trying to be entertaining through um, you know through the music and the the um, the collective vision experience of seeing the whole stage from a distance. Mm. But you know, I, where, where possible, it is nice to give people more value for money and give them. Uh, a little more detail and as I say context because that's what I like to use video for it, it's yeah. telling you sometimes it's it's using imagery that is literal sometimes it's more abstracted sometimes it's specifically related to the the time when that music was written and recorded uh, you know to set a to set a scene to set a, a, a historical context for something but it's you know it's, it for me it's interesting putting that, all that stuff together and, and working with my son who is the uh, person who does all the uh, editing and putting all that in its uh, in its workable context it's um it's nice to do but it's also kind of nice to do the other kind of show because you're free of those constraints you don't have to have everything running like literally like clockwork which you do in a production show with video you know you have a, a much looser um method of performing when you don't have um, when it's just you on a stage with your musical instruments, it's quite liberating to do a few of those shows when you've been on the road, you know, month after month in theatres doing full production shows. So, you know, it's a nice mix. And at Christmas, of course, it's yet again different because I find myself performing in cathedrals and ancient churches in a in a very different context again and with a different, very different set list. So, you know, I, 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 I get to do a lot of different stuff. I don't get bored. And um, I'm always looking forward to returning to another type of performance that uh, perhaps I haven't done for a few weeks or months. Well, I must admit, Ian, in five years, if there's a Jethro Tell hologram show and of the 70s concerts, I would sign up because I missed that. Uh, the first time I saw you guys was 1981. So, mm. um, Well, the thing, the thing is that you... you, you... <laughs> miss it because um it frankly is is almost never there you know we we <laughs> like led zeppelin took a very um uh, positive um view about not recording live yes. shows not being on television not releasing singles and all that sort of stuff you know there, there, there was quite a similarity between uh, peter grant and led zeppelin and uh, terry ellis and jethro tull you know similar view that we wanted to preserve the exclusivity of live performance we didn't we didn't want to be filmed all the time and and have all this stuff kind of be out there and, and in some ways i rather regret that there isn't more um uh, video or filmed uh, material from Jethro Tull in those days. Yeah. There, there, there obviously is some, but you know, yeah. compared to some other acts, uh, it's it's a bit thin on the ground. And of course, back then the te technology of it all meant that today's uh, today's visual imagery is a, a, a lot more you know sparkling and clear and punchy compared to the grainy old footage from early right. video cameras for television or film cameras for. Um, uh, you know, recording that kind of a stuff. That's and, a good um, point. Maybe that's why I was so blown away when I saw the uh, rock and roll circus because I had not seen much Jethro Tull. Yeah, films. well, that 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 was typical of, uh, of television video cameras of that yeah. age, and um, you know, it's pretty pretty poor quality stuff, really, by today's standards. And you know, another another example of something that 
is of huge documentary importance, but technically not not great at all, is the uh, the work by Murray Lerner when he recorded the Isle of Wight Festival in 1971. And that was, uh, I mean, I don't know for a fact, but I'd be pretty sure it was shot with a 16mm Ariflex camera because that was the state of the art of the day. And um, it uh, it is great footage, but nonetheless, you know, you are looking at pretty grainy old... Uh, mm-hmm. Um, limited definition stuff that um, doesn't really quite have the sparkle of today's video cameras, which um, I mean, it's interesting that The Walking Dead, uh, uh, when Frank uh, Darabont decided to embark upon on that, uh, chose to, to shoot film mm-hmm. and uh, felt that the the, the the filmic media was better suited to something that had its roots anyway in the uh, in the days of uh, the Night of the Living Dead, for example, mm. of which he was a huge fan. So mm. The Walking Dead being shot on, on film is, is fine, but um, dare I say that if my son-in-law ever does get round to making The Walking Dead movie, he's still waiting for a script. When that happens and if it goes ahead, then I have a feeling they will be switching to a, a medium more suitable to the big screen for mm. a you know, for a full-length feature movie because uh, the quality of the for the television of 16 mil uh, film is is fine and uh, has that certain filmic quality, but uh, it's not so good when you try to blow that up in a in a huge movie theater with a big panoramic screen. It ain't going to cut it. So um, it um, it will be a different a different tech, 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 technical ball game to to go there just as um, just as we we have to consider those things in all areas of entertainment do the right thing for the medium that you're you're using and now lastly I, I have to ask you about the official tall 50th anniversary book which will be in fall right it's going to be released maybe you could tell yeah you. it's um it's uh, I think uh, now gone to uh, to to press it I think we wrapped that up about two weeks ago so it's all absolutely finalized and uh, done and in the manufacturing process and it's a kind of a limited edition of uh, of uh, copies and you know, a couple of different formats available but it's it's uh, available only only by mail order and um, it uh, is a piece that um, tells the story of Jethro Tell through the obviously the musicians and a few associates and um, um, and a certain amount of objectivity, but it, it, it's really very factual and has some great contributions from some ex-band members who uh, happily I was able to persuade to, to take part and to contribute their memories and their anecdotes. And, um, it, you know, it was hugely entertaining for me to read it uh, from that perspective of hearing uh, what the other guys had to say. And as, if you like, editor-in-chief over all of that, I I took the decision, apart from correcting some typos or grammar errors, I, I took the decision to leave their contributions intact. I didn't edit anything um, uh, at all out of the others' contributions. I felt they should have um, uh, the, the opportunity to be uh, literally represented in, in what they said. Now, is this Genesis publication? Is this uh, published by Genesis? 
Uh, no, it's not. It's um, it's uh, well, you, if, if you if you check it out on the Jethro Tull yeah, website yeah. or just just Google Jethro Tull, it's, 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 the title of the book is um, the Ballad of Jethro Tull. If you Google that, you'll 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 see where you have everything you need to know, and indeed, people who want to order it can sure. uh, it's been pre-ordered. You see, in quite a, a way already to. Um, uh, justify the the cost of printing and production. It's, it's not something you're going to find on sale in uh, in Walmart. your local bookstore. Well, unless it's a secondhand bookstore and you find a, you know uh, you know a, a copy that's been uh, put back uh, for sale. But yeah. if somebody has a copy they don't want, I think you're more likely to pick it up on eBay than you are in a local bookstore. Well, I look forward to it. Very good. Well, very nice to talk to you. Yeah, Thanks it was great talking to we'll, you. We'll, uh, Great. Cheers. Thank you very much. Bye Thank bye you now. very much. Bye now. Thank you, Ian Anderson. It's always a pleasure and it's always a fascinating interview. And whether you agree with Ian's positions on technology or vinyl or politics, climate change, etc., that's your choice, of course. But you have no choice but to acknowledge and respect a man's intellect. He's a living gem in the music world today. Okay, this is Pat Prince signing off. We'll see you on the next podcast episode. Once again, thanks for listening, and don't forget to pick up Gold My Magazine on a new stand at select Barnes & Noble and Books A Million stores. Also, go to goldmymag.com for exclusive content and get a percentage off subscription rates. Bye for now. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.